Tonight we begin our journey through the book of Judges. The sermon will cover the first two chapters. Our reading tonight is from Judges chapter 2 verse 6 to chapter 3 verse 6. To quickly set the scene, the book of Judges is set directly after the book of Joshua, which tells the story of Israel conquering and occupying the promised land. Chapter 1 of Judges tells the story of the southern tribes, Judah and Simeon, defeating the Canaanites, while the rest of the tribes of Israel did not drive out the inhabitants of the land and were told by God if they do not drive them out, then they would become snares to the Israelites and they would serve the foreign gods. Now we'll pick up at Judges 2, verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who, were not who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidians, the Hevites, living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hamon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. 
They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Thank you, Hannah. There were some cracker names in that passage. You did really well. Very, very well. Please do have the Bible open before you. We're going to be trekking through, as Hannah was saying, chapters 1 and chapter 2. Sometimes the verses will be on the screen. A lot of the times they won't because we're covering a lot of ground. So if you have God's Word in front of you, I'll be referring to it consistently. That would be very, very helpful. Before we approach it, though, I'm going to pray. So please do pray with me. Our good and our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you in all of its parts. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Thank you it teaches us about you and your purposes for this world, that it leads us to Jesus. But as we look over Judges, it's a difficult book, God. You wrote it, you know. And so we pray by your Holy Spirit, you help us to understand what it is that you are saying to the Israelites and what you are saying to us. Speak clearly through me. Be at work amongst your people here and across the screen. In Jesus' name, amen. Now imagine some of you have, but if any of you had experience with dieting, <laughs> that was my mum, wasn't it? <laughs> Sorry, mum. I get my genes from my mum. And so this story is about me, nothing to do with mum. Sorry, mum, that chucked you on the bus hard there. But when you need to diet, right, what happens is you look, uh, you look down at the scales, you go, good grief. You push them under, you don't look at it again, and then you come back to a year later, you look at the scales and go, wow, I really need to do something about this. And so you start the, the dieting journey. Now, for me, I have a deep delight in chocolate, uh, as some of you may know, and so when I start dieting, I need to go cold turkey, otherwise I've got no chance. But as I go along with it, I think I'm doing pretty well here, I have, I have two bits of chocolate, and then you go a bit further along, and I'm like, nothing really happened, that was all fine with that. I'll have a row of chocolate. And then it's, I'll have two rows, and then suddenly it's a month later and you're punishing the whole block a night. Elizabeth says she has maybe one row. It's not good. But what happens is in my lifestyle, I don't really take up dieting in its fullness. And I just go in this kind of downward spiral. Now that is the story of judges. Not really in the dieting, but in idolatry. They continue to turn away from God. They continuously need a saviour again and again. Now, we are going to trek through this book in Judges, and we're going to cover it in its entirety. And hopefully you did get a chance to read it if you haven't or you're familiar with the book. It's a confronting book. It is quite a confronting book. Uh, it tells a dark story of Israel, but it also tells of a very loving and a faithful God. It ends up beginning like this story of a world completely without God, but yet woven throughout it all is a God who is faithful and leads us to a true Savior who we don't see in this book, but who we see in the person of Jesus uh, in the New Testament. Now, as, as we open up, we're going to drop ourselves into an, a very much an unfolding story in the Bible. If, like, if you were to pick up a series, just say Harry Potter, and you go into book three. You really need to know what happened in book one and two. For us, we need to know what happened in the six books before and really kind of the overarching narrative of the Bible as we approach Judges. So you may or may not know the Bible is made up of 66 books and writings and all sorts of things. They're all separate, but well, some of them are united, but they all have one unified story. They all have one unified story going from creation all the way through to new creation. 
And as you know, like Cain, uh, Adam and Eve, there's sin that enters the world. And the Bible is telling us about God's mission to save the world, to save his people, bring about a new creation. And what he does is he picks out a group of people, starting with Abraham, and says, you are going to be my chosen people to ultimately bring about redemption, to bring about his way in the world, which ultimately will lead to Jesus. But up until this point, uh, just prior to Judges, is Israel have been made a nation, and they've had Moses, they've gone out of Egypt, and they've begun to conquer the promised land with Joshua. God has given Abraham three promises, If you can remember them, land, offspring, and blessing. And so as God gives them the law, it's about how to live as God's people, how to be blessed, to be a blessing to the nations. Uh, They've grown as a people. But in Joshua and Judges, it's about very much the conquering of the land. How are they going to go about conquering the land? Now, two people who I mentioned before, Joshua and Moses, are particularly important in what they said as we approach the book together. Now, there's two passages in particular, one in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Joshua 23, 24. There's a lot of similarities. It's both before these kind of Israelite leaders die. And they give this final sermon, final farewell speech. And the thrust of both their sermons is, God is faithful to you, be faithful to God. God has been faithful to you, be faithful to God. And the kind of take-home application, if they were to be writing on their little stone notebooks, which they didn't do, they just had to remember, was be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Obey God. Obey the law. Obey the Torah. What you need to do as you enter the land is drive out the nations. And as you do that, trust God to to deliver you. Don't align with the nations. Don't make treaties with them. Because if you do, If you don't drive them out, if you form treaties with them, if you allow them to live with you, you will follow their idols and you will stop following God. The thrust is drive out the nations, destroy the idols, don't be afraid. So as we come and we answer the book of Judges, the kind of question is, will they trust God or will they compromise? So with that, we can jump in. We're going to have a look. We're going to start in chapter 1 and then we'll head into chapter 2. Now, chapter 1 and chapter 2 are kind of very much parallel introductions. They kind of introduce the book twice from two different perspectives. Uh, One carries the kind of historical narrative forward, which is chapter 1, and then you look at the kind of spiritual condition, which is chapter 2. But go back. We're going to start chapter 1. Have a look with me. So after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is going to go up and fight against the Canaanites? The Canaanites being the inhabitants of the land. The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. Judah being the tribe of Judah. Judah shall go up. I've given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, another tribe, their fellow Israelites, come up with us to the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked... The Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. They struck down 10,000 men who were warriors at Bezek. Now, a couple things to point out about the passage. Firstly, there's no specific leader that is mentioned, which is a little bit interesting. But perhaps it's like, well, can they actually now trust God alone now? Implied question, maybe. But it seems as though Israel has started strong. right? It looks like they're doing a pretty good job here. They go, they 
approach God. They ask what he wants of them. God says, Judah shall go up. They go up. And then Judah goes, they fight, they win. But did you notice anything about what Judah did? Did they trust or did they compromise? And when you have a look, it's said that they also asked the Simeonites to come with them. It's like, yeah, we trust God. We trust you. But we're going to just add something on our own terms. Simeonites come with us. They compromise. They don't fully trust God. Perhaps they don't think they can win. Perhaps they don't think they have too many, they don't have enough people. Either way, sure, God, we want to follow you, but we're going to do it in our own way. We're going to add our own little bit. And man, we can be similar, can't we? I know I can certainly be similar. Like, yeah, I'll trust you, God, but something. God, I'll trust you with my money, but just let me sort out my finances first. Yes, I'll trust you, God, but just make sure I get a good career of some form, shape, or one other so that I can be secure and I can trust you fully. God, let me just add my own thoughts, my own logic, my own insurance just to make sure it's all good. Yeah, God, I trust you, but something else. And that's Judah. Sure, it makes common, like, it's common sense in military terms. Take Simeon with you. But it is compromised faith. God says, Judah, go. Judah says, okay, but on my terms. Nevertheless, God grants them victory. Right? If you just kind of cast your eye over the next verses up to verse 19, you see lots of battles and basically just victories. You see a lovely image of a family from well, Caleb's family, and we're introduced to this guy, Othniel, who we'll see in chapter 3. He's the first judge. Uh, and it's, it's all kind of good it seems. Uh, God seems to be granting them victory, giving them the promised land. Now, I need to pause here for a moment. Us as 21st century readers, as, as we read this and as we read Joshua, in the conquering of the land, it raises some very difficult and almost awkward questions for us. Like, what's with all the killing? What's with all the destroying, driving out of nations? It kind of seems counter to God's character. It's very confronting. Now, this is not a sermon about answering that question. A lot of people have done a wonderful job in answering that question. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time on it because I think it will raise more questions than it does answers. Kind of in the basic sense, it's part of God's justice on an evil nation. God can't have uh, evil. He's about eradicating it. And part of it is about removing the idolatry from the land. It's not about ethnic cleansing. It's not about imperial expansion. Now, if you want to dive into this more, if that's a question you genuinely have, then I've done lots of reading and there's lots of people who are much smarter than me who have written some really helpful stuff which I can pass on to you and, and point you in the direction of. So you can find me after the service, send in an SMS. Very happy to send that on to you. But to bring it back to Judges with actually what the narrative goes on about is that at this point it looks positive, right? It looks good. Judah are on the right track. Until you reach verse 19. Have a read verse 19 with me. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Well, they've been going so good, driving out everybody. What's going on here? Why can't they drive out these people? 
The answer is in the description. These guys had iron chariots. Right? Israel just has foot soldiers. Right? It is like taking, in our terms, a, a sword or knife to a gunfight. Like, obviously, the person with the gun's going to win. In human terms, you've got no chance. Basically, to Judah, the enemy looked bigger. The enemy looked badder. The enemy just looked straight out better than them. In human terms, Judah had no chance of winning. So they did not trust. God is with them. It says that, but they did not trust. They looked to the iron. They looked to what the enemy had and they feared it. They did not trust God. The consequence is they leave the Canaanites there. They did not enjoy God's blessing of the land. Sure, common sense, don't attack the guys who are stronger than you. But faithless sense prevails. Tim Keller in a, in a a commentary he writes on Judges, which I've found really, really helpful. He has this quote and applying it to us, and I'll read it. He says, It is not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessing or from worshipping God wholeheartedly. It's our lack of faith in His strength. It's our lack of faith in His strength being God's strength. Right? When we rely on our own strength, on our own calculations, not on God's promises, we end up making half-hearted decisions, just like Judah. And halfway faith, compromised faith, it's not really faith at all. And what we see as we follow the narrative from here is just tribe after tribe doing a similar thing, not trusting God. And we get this consistent refrain again and again and again, the Israelites did not drive out the inhabitants. The inhabitants lived among them. Israel did not drive out, they lived among. Like, cast through it with me. I think it's worth feeling the weight of what goes on here. Verse 21. All the names, by the way, of the Israelites are tribes. They're not particular people. They're tribes. 21. The Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites living in Jerusalem. To this day, they lived among the Benjamites. Did not drive out, they lived among 22 to 26, there's a tribe of Joseph. Now they attack a city called Bethel when the Lord was with them. And when they went there, they sent a man to, uh, to spy it out. It was formerly called Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, this is important to remember, show us how to get into the city and we will see that you were treated well. So they showed them, they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. Then he went to the land of the Hittites, this is the spared family, the Canaanite, and they built a city called Luz, which is its name to this day. The irony is confronting. God says, do not make covenants with the Canaanites. When they say, we'll be good to you, well, basically, we'll save you. We'll make a covenant with you. What happens? The man from Luz just goes and makes another city of Luz. Luz, I don't know how to say it. Something like that. The Canaanite city is just transplanted from one to the other, continues to be a thorn in their side. They don't trust God. The Canaanites continue to be a thorn in their side. You go on, 27. New tribe, Manasseh. They don't drive out the people. The Canaanites, what? They're determined to live in the land. What does Israel do? They get strong and they press the Canaanites into forced labor. We can have a bit of economic advantage here. Let's do that. Turning the Canaanites into slaves was never an option for the Israelites. It seemed like a good idea to them, but God forbid them to do that. They were needed to drive out the inhabitants. 
but the Israelites thought they knew better. You get 29 and 30, Ephraim, Zebulun, they do the same. 31 through to 33, you get the tribe of Asher and Naphtali. They do not drive out the inhabitants. Sometimes they force them into labor, but they always leave them there. They live among them. And then you get to verse 34, the Danites. Now the Danites, they're the worst of the lot. The Amorites confine the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. The Danites don't trust God so much that they're not even going to bother going into the land. I'm not even going to bother living, going into the land, living among them. Why? Because the, Amor- the enemy, the, the Canaanites, they're too determined. They think they're stronger than the Israelites. You think back to Joshua. When Joshua was faithful, the Israelites are conquering the land. All the surrounding nations are fearful of the Lord. Now it's the opposite. The Israelites are fearful of the nations. They do not trust God at all. The Canaanites seem too powerful. They create too much fear for the Israelites so they don't trust God. Now, we can almost feel a bit of like sympathy. I don't know if any of you feel a bit of like sympathy for the Israelites at this point. I've been painting them in a bad picture because I think the passage does. But... Like maybe Israelites, they had iron chariots, they were stronger. Yeah, sure, maybe you couldn't uh, carry it out. It looks a little bit of like positive spin on what's going on. It's like a politician. Oh, this happened, but, 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 but really, you know, we're doing a good job in whatever. It looks like positive spin. But then you get God's voice through an angel, through the angel of the Lord. God responds. He gives his assessment of the Israelites. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. The last time we heard of the angel of the Lord was at Gilgal with Joshua. Right? He says, and he's like the voice of God, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive out them before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. They did not trust God. They did not trust that God's law was good. They didn't drive out the Canaanites. They compromised. They disobeyed. They didn't trust God. And we can definitely be guilty of the same. To put it in To put it another way, it's like they say, God, it's all too hard. We just couldn't do it. I can't. But you know what God says to that? You say can't, I say won't. You say that you can't obey my law, you can't trust me, but really it's you won't obey me. It's that you won't trust me. Israelites, it's never been about you and your strength. It's never been about what you can achieve. It's always been about what I can achieve through. This is the voice of God. Your role is to trust and obey, to act in faith. I will bring the victory from where you cannot see. It's not that you can't trust and obey. It's that you won't trust and obey. And friends, when we look over areas of our life, that is a confronting thought, isn't it? That is a confronting thought. Like, are there places we say to God, man, I, I want to compromise. I couldn't, I can't obey in this area. But really, it's that we won't. 
I mentioned before finances. Perhaps it is with your finances. God, he calls us to give out of our first fruits. But we more go along, well, let me just check that I can pay my mortgage first, that I can pay for the groceries, that I can make sure that, you know, God calls me to rest and delight so I have entertainment in my budget. Make sure I've got all those things in check and then I'll give. And when we do that, we're not trusting in God to provide. We're not trusting in his good word. It's not that we can't, it's that we won't. Maybe it's we say that we can't forgive him or her for whatever they did. We know we call to forgive, but we rationalize it with it's not fair or, or something. Maybe it's some form of temptation. Like we say we can't resist it. We say that it was impossible for me to not do it for whatever reason. But then we keep finding ourselves there, keep running towards it. Now, of course, sin has like a, an addictive nature to it. It has um, an addictive power in that sense. But do we trust God? Do we trust God that his ways are right? Do we trust him that, it's, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, that he will always give a way out? We're going to trust and obey. Sometimes it's not that we can't do it. It's that we won't do it. And that is the picture that we're seeing painted on the canvas for us 3,000 years ago. A people of Israel who have half-hearted faith. Yes, God is their God. Yeah, they want to follow him, but they syncretize. They make it also about other gods. They want to trust in other things. But friends, trust and compromise cannot last. They cannot go together. When we compromise and not fully trust, there will always be consequences. We might not see it originally, but it will carry on. And that brings us back to Judges. And it brings us actually to what we read in chapter 2. Because the landmines that are since laid in chapter 1 begin to explode in chapter 2. I want to pick up from verse 6. won't read it. The, the theme is Joshua is alive. Israel is faithful. Joshua is faithful, but then he died. And then we get verse 10. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. So basically Joshua and all those generation died. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And served the Baals, basically all the other gods of the Canaanites. This new generation did not know God. Not in the sense that they like intellectually, well, who is Yahweh? Who, who's that guy? More in the sense that they didn't really care about Yahweh anymore, didn't care about God. They chose not to remember him. They lost the deep, the intimate connection that they had with God. In other words, they now have no relationship with him. No personal commitment, no care. Now, if you're a parent, if you're a youth leader, you're a kids leader, or if you have any heart for the church to see it continue to go on, that is a stark image. It only took one generation, one generation for them to forget the Lord, to not know the Lord. As Ange mentioned in the sermon in the Together series, that the church is only ever one generation away from extinction. Case in point, Judges 2, verse 10. The Israelites had perhaps gone from one of the most faithful eras of their existence in Joshua and the people who were the Israelites of that day to the next generation, maybe one of the worst. Friends, that can happen, could happen at Nawi. It can. Now, of course, God's church is always going to go on. The Holy Spirit is far more powerful. 
God's agenda will always continue. But we need to remember to model, to love, to teach, to pass down what it looks like to know God and to follow him. And when we are the ones that are being passed down to, we need to listen and obey and trust and follow in the way of God. The consequences are too great not to. But here in Judges, what we now find is there's a tension in the narrative. There's a tension, the two things pulling in opposite directions because God is always going to be faithful. He's always going to keep his promises Yet he also requires holiness. He always requires a holy people. God is holy. He will not tolerate. He will not bless evil. On the other hand, he's always loving. And he always wants to ensure the continuation of his people. So there's that constant tension. And in a sense, it goes unanswered in the book of Judges. One commentator, Willock, he rephrases it like this. He's like, God is saying, I swore to give you the whole land, yet I also swore not to give it to disobedient people. So what's going to happen? How is this kind of tension going to resolve itself? And what we see is what we call the cycle in Judges. We see this continual cycle that happens. And what we read on from verse 11 through to about 20 is a summary of the whole book of Judges. Well, a summary from chapter 3 through to chapter 16, which is about the, the stories of the Judges. So I want to, as we read through this, we'll work through the narrative, but also know this is a summary of the book. So have a look at the beginning. In verse 11, the beginning of all the stories is that Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Israelites forget the Lord. Uh, They do evil in his eyes and serve other idols. Verse 11, they did that. Evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forsook the Lord of their ancestors that brought brought them up out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods and the peoples all around him and aroused God's anger. They follow the Israelites. They don't follow Israel's God. They follow the God of, of the Canaanites and do evil in his eyes. Now, God hands them over to that. He gets angry. He hands them over to the oppressors. And that's the next stage. And this always happens. Verse 14. In his anger, God, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them, this is the Israelites, into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever, there is, whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he has sworn to them. Like a child who rejects their parent, the parent perhaps may get angry and then just allow the child to experience the consequences of their actions. But don't miss the irony here for the Israelites. They chose to follow the other gods. They chose to go after them. And what did it lead to? It led to oppression. It led to slavery. If there is ever a picture in the Bible of idolatry leading to slavery, this is it. We see that littered throughout the New Testament. When you follow other things other than God, it leads to slavery. Slavery to sin. What is happening physically to the Israelites here happens to us spiritually. When we put anything above God, it can seem harmless. It can seem like it's of no problem. But eventually those things will enslave us. Just as it did for the Israelites. The cycle goes on. After being handed into the oppressors uh, for their idol worship, 
They're obviously distressed. Right? They cry out to God. That's what you see at the end of 15. They were in great distress. Often when we read the stories, it's like they cried out to God, like, God, save us. There's a sense of repentance. There's also just a sense of they're desperate. God, do something. And God in his compassion will do something. What we see is that God raises up a judge. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up a judge who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yeah, they wouldn't listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from their ways their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, God was with the judge and he saved them out of the hands of enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. So God, he raises up a judge. Maybe more helpful, he raises up a deliverer. Because when we think of judge, you probably think of like a guy with a woolly hat being like in a courtroom, right? Judicial system, judge. That's not what's going on here. Judges in the book of Judges, are like military leaders. They have a spiritual component, but they're very much military leaders. So when God raises up a judge, he's really raising up a savior. He's raising up someone to deliver them. And that's what God does. And as that happens, the judge does uh, his or her work, and then there is peace. There's peace in the land. We don't read it here, but often we'll say, and the land had peace for 40 years or for 80 years. Basically, they enjoy God's blessing, having now remembered and followed him. But then actually, as we go through the stories, and as we see here, it doesn't last very long. They go back to their idolatry. They go back even more corrupt. Verse 19, But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than their ancestors. Following other gods, worshipping and serving them, they refused Notice that language, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. It's even more corrupt. It's this downward spiral again and again. It doesn't, their, save out, their salvation in a sense, their rest in the land doesn't last because the idolatry is grained in them. And what we see is this continual cycle, but really it's a downward spiral. Worse and worse and worse every time. Like we think Samson is the greatest judge because we've gone through and seen him. You know, wreck a temple. He's the worst. And when we look at his story, you'll go, oh, wow. Israel have really descended a long way here. And that's what we see. In that picture up above, you can see the cycle. Serve the Lord, but then it's forget him. Fall into idolatry. Become enslaved. Then crying out to God, God saves them. Israel is delivered. They serve the Lord, they experience rest. Then all the way back to idolatry again, and again, and again. The root of their problem is they're not trusting God. They're not driving out the idols. It is idolatry. For us, this is a very stark, it's a confronting image of what it looks like to live amongst idols. Right, we were joining through 1 Corinthians in the series before. We were talking about the idols of the world or the, the, the culture that is against God. Here, the idols are very much present. And kind of define an idol, Tim Keller puts it this way, which I think is helpful. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart, your imagination, that gives you more meaning than God. Anything we seek that gives us only what God can give. Anything like that is an idol. 
Now, when we don't drive out the idols from our heart, when we choose to live with them, there's always going to be consequences. And sometimes we don't see them initially. Sometimes we don't understand why it happens. But when the idols are in our heart, there is always going to be consequences. Perhaps you've, you've witnessed that cycle in your life. Joyful, you're passionate about your relationship with God. But then forget about him, get complacent, compromise, little after little, go after the things of this world, end up far from God, cry out to him, repent, then experience that renewed relationship with God again. But then forget, go back in the cycle. Friends, we need to drive out the idols from our life. Like the Israelites, they need to drive out like, idol-worshipping Canaanites. We need to drive out the idols from our heart. They will only ensnare, they will only entangle, they will only strip us of our life and our true joy and satisfaction. They're going to lead us away from God. We need to identify our idols, confess them to God and others, and then work towards getting rid of them in your heart, in your life. Now, in the New Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit is the one who's at work in us, in our heart, transforming our heart, transforming us to drive out those idols. He's the one who's at work. God is still, like he was back then and now, in the business of transforming his people. But as we look at this cycle and as you think about it in your own heart and your own life, always remember the character of God. Always lean back and remember that we have a loving God, that He is for us. He's always and only for us, that He loves us, that He's faithful to us. Like a good and a loving parent never abandons their children. Our God is a good Father. He will never abandon. Sure, He gets angry when we go away from Him and He may allow us to experience the consequences of our sin. But he is always a faithful and a loving God. And that is one of just the absolute overarching messages of judges. As you have this un, like, well, this unwaver, these wavering people, you have an unwavering God, a gracious, faithful God. And friends, this just points us to Jesus. Because in the book of Judges, we ultimately don't get a true Savior. We don't get a Savior that actually does the real work. But we know that we find that in the person of Jesus. And we know that no matter how far we've fallen, no matter how far we've turned away from God, that he will always allow us back, always has open arms. God won't stand for evil, but he never disowns his people. And we see that perfectly in the person of Jesus. He died to conquer evil, to bear God's wrath against evil, but also as the ultimate act of love. For us, if you ever feel like you're not loved, you just look to the person of Jesus and you know he delights in you, that he loves you, that he died for you, for us, for his church. So, friends, we have a sure, we have a true hope in our Lord Jesus. He's calling us, as we look at the book of Judges, to throw off the idols, to continue to trust God. Sure, we might not know why, we might feel like we have a better idea than God. But we've seen the consequences of that. Continue to trust him. And what we'll find is a Savior who loves us, who delights in us, who's forgiven us, and we'll find life to the full, both now and into eternity. Let me pray for us. Our loving God, thank you. Thank you that as we turn from you, you never turn from us. 
thank you that you are our Father, that because of Jesus we have relationship with you. Please help us by your Holy Spirit to drive out the idols from our heart, transform us from the inside out to your glory. And we know we, can, we need to trust you, but sometimes, God, it is hard. Change our heart. Help us, we pray. And may you get the glory in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.